Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's talk about a pleasure-based life. Actually, Mike, got it good. Okay, go ahead. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He says, come now, I'll I'll test you with pleasure. So he's already tried achievement. He's already tried causes. Now he's going to try turning himself to pleasure. What are the points? What, What can we learn here? Pleasure, just like achievement and causes, fails on its own terms. Doesn't fail in my terms. Doesn't fail in your terms. You'll always look at someone else and the way they enjoy life, what they do in their free time, their hobbies. You say, well, that's that's stupid. It's what I would. That's what I wouldn't do. Right. Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Why do they do that? The pleasure doesn't fail in your terms or my terms. It fails on its own terms. And. Here's an important distinction. What he's not saying is that pleasure. He's not saying, you know, pleasure. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. So he's not saying, yeah, um, and hedonism is the uh, notion that uh, it's the opposite of hedonism. It's we say, I just don't find this stuff that pleasurable anymore. And he's not saying, I've, I've been there, I've had it all, I've got the castle, I've got the, the harem, I've got all this stuff. And you know, it's not that great. He's not saying that. I met a guy, I, there, I, think, I think in this, i can be a little careful about this, because I think in this Bible study, there are some current or former Ferrari owners. Okay. So. But I met a guy, ran into just a, uh, within the last year, I ran into a partner at my old, one of my old law firms in New York City. And I said, hey, I heard you own a Ferrari. He said, yeah, which one? I said, oh, so you have more than one. He says, yeah, I got 11. 11 Ferraris. Where do you, I mean, you live in Manhattan. Where do you keep them? I got a garage in Connecticut. Do you drive them like now and again? Yeah, whatever. Anyway, the conversation had exactly that tone to it. You know, the first Ferrari was exciting. It was new. The second one, well, yeah, okay. By the 11th one. And so you could hear Solomon saying that these, you could say the message of Ecclesiastes is this pleasure, but just won't, it won't be that great. And you could probably find celebrities now. You just find some news stories. Say, say there's a celebrity. They had it all. They had the yacht. They had the, all this stuff. They said, yeah, it's not that great. And if you think that's the message, you'll distinguish it from yourself. And you say, Give, I'll try the yacht. I'll try, I'll try one of the Ferraris. If you don't like it, I'll try it, right? Because you, you can find another celebrity that says, you know what's great? Flying private. Private jet is great. You'll find someone else who loves the pleasure. You say, well, that guy didn't like it, but I would like it. 
So that's not that's not the message. He's not saying it's not great. It's fine. It's great. It's just not a way to build your life on. And the reason is this. He said, I've already tried a cause-based life and an achievement-based life. And what I found is that I had this naggy voice in the back of my head that kept talking and kept saying, it's pointless. It's pointless. It's pointless. And so achievement didn't do it. And it's still, it's pointless. It's pointless. And a cause-based life, I'll try that. It's pointless. It's pointless. That little voice in his head. So you know what I'll do? I'll drown out that voice with pleasure. I'll get so much pleasure. I don't hear that voice anymore. And he tries all this pleasure. And that's the key to understanding this section. The phrase, in all this, my wisdom stood by me. You might read it at first and say, your wisdom stood by you. It sounds like what you're doing is pretty foolish. But what it means is he says, in all that pleasure, that voice kept coming out. My wisdom stood by me. It's pointless. It's pointless. It's pointless. And what I found is that you can get all the pleasure. There's not enough pleasure to drown out that voice. It can't be done. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to drown that out and say, I could find meaning in, in this. Can't be done. There's another verse just like this. Chapter three, verse nine. He has said eternity in the human heart. That's what he concluded. But in all this, my wisdom stood by me. You can't get enough pleasure to drown out the notion that life is meaningless. Now, before we go on, just like there's a little Christian confusion in our world about achievement, there's a lot of Christian confusion about pleasure. Bill Long, we were in a Bible study together years ago, CLC group. You might remember this discussion. We had a unit there on wealth and money. And uh, I brought in an article from Tony Campolo. Now, Tony Campolo is a famous Christian author and speaker in the 80s and 90s. And he had this article. The title of the article was, Would Jesus Drive a BMW? And for today, maybe we'll say, would Jesus drive a Ferrari? And so we had an engaging discussion, as you recall, maybe maybe call about that. Would Jesus drive a BMW? So first blush, a lot of guys say, oh, no. No, the answer is flat on no. Of course, of course he would. And people say, no, no, wait, no, he could, I could see that. I mean, if the BMW is, you know, a good investment and it doesn't appreciate and you could, you could always drive people to Bible study, right? So all those arguments are utilitarian arguments, right? I say, if it's functional utilitarian or spiritual in some way, then it's okay. Okay, I said, what, what if you just enjoy the BMW? And then I said, here, I have a follow-up question for you. Can a Christian eat an ice cream cone? I got the same response to the Bible study. Of course. Wait, come on, of course. No, wait, think about it. Could Jesus drive a convertible? Would Jesus go to the beach on vacation and lay in the sun for a week? See, the question itself was a setup because we all imagine Jesus as being very focused, very ministry focused. He was serious. He was he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was very focused on his ministry. Right. And so, no, he wouldn't go lay in the sun for a week and he wouldn't drive around in a convertible, let alone a convertible Ferrari. Can't imagine Jesus would never do that. So, OK, so maybe there is no Christian rationale for pleasure. Can a Christian eat an ice cream cone? Sure. Why do you say Yes. What's the Christian rationale for pleasure? And the answer comes befuddled. It's, uh, you know, I, I, it's small. It's small. It's 50 cents. That's why. But it's not principled. It's just small. So look, the Christian world has had confusion about this for 2,000 years. We have swung back and forth to asceticism. People say, you're right. You're right. It's fraught with peril. Pleasure is fraught with peril. Let's just get rid of it. Let's get, that's the whole basis for the monastic movement. Let's just be, all be monks, live in monasteries, get rid of pleasure, renounce all worldly things. And you swing the other way. That's the prosperity gospel. God wants you to go first class. 
I, I remember seeing one guy say, he held up the Bible and he said, this whole book says God wants you to be happy. That's a prosperity gospel. Let's swing the other way, right? That's a penny. But most of us live in this befuddled middle where we say, I don't, look, I don't really know. I don't really know if God thinks pleasure is okay, but I don't want to live like a monk. So I'm going to sneak in the ice cream cone once in a while. I'm not really sure I should, but I'm just going to do it. And that's a confusion about is pleasure okay? I, okay, I guess not, but I, I just can't, I, I'm going to do it anyway. And that's where, honestly, most of us live. So today, I'll see, I think Ecclesiastes speaks to that. Maybe we can learn something from that and all these other things too. So let's talk about the solution. The solution. The solution is a pure gospel solution. This is the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. And I'll read this one. This is chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, here's where we interpret scripture with scripture. Is he preaching universal salvation? See, God has already approved the works of everybody. Yes, early in the book, I said there's judgment, but when the judgment means God's just going to say it's all okay. Nobody, God is like Santa Claus. Nobody gets a lump of coal, right? Is that what he's preaching? No. John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This verse is for us believers. So it's not universalistic salvation. Again, interpret scripture with scripture. But to those of us who believe, you've been washed with the blood of Christ. Go your way, for God has already approved your works. And it brings up two great Christian doctrines that are gathered by the gospel. The first is standing. We talked about this here before. We say, you might feel like a two out of 10. You might feel on a good day like a six out of 10. But in God's eyes, you are always, since the day you accepted Christ, a 10 out of 10. In his eyes, you are a 10. Your standing is complete. God has already approved your works. And substitution. It's, they're not your works. When God looks at you, all of your works, all of your filthy, rotten sin has been moved to Jesus. And all of his righteous works have been moved to you. It's a great exchange. It's, the, it's pure gospel. Right here in Ecclesiastes, God has approved your, when he says, I look at you and I look at all your works, I'm looking at all the works of Christ transferred to you. You know what I see? A 10 out of 10. Your standing is complete. Go your way for God has already approved your works. So if that's true, if that's true, go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Now, again, let's interpret scripture with scripture. Does that mean I can go get drunk? No. Does that mean I can have a harem? No. Absolutely not. Right, you got to see. I'm not going to do anything immoral. Like I'm not going to break any of the. Of the I'm not going to break any of the commandments. I'm not going to do immoral things to get pleasure. But in terms of just, just look, life is filled with a lot of suffering. Life is still filled with a lot of really bad days. Jesus said in Matthew six, each day has enough trouble of its own. We have lots and lots of sermons. You've all heard lots of sermons on suffering, the Christian approach to suffering. How many sermons have you heard on the Christian approach to pleasure? Is it okay to eat an ice cream cone? Can I do that? Yes. No, don't eat 20 a day and it's not good for you. Right? That's not get crazy. But is it okay to enjoy life? Some days, you know, the sun shines. It just feels warm on your skin. Your debts are paid off. Your kids are all right. Some days are okay. 
And it's really okay to enjoy life. And I love it. It goes on. Let your clothes be white all the time, not dark in the morning. Enjoy life. You didn't hear me the first time. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. It's really okay. Don't do anything immoral. But it's really okay to enjoy life. And then the kicker, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Achieve great things. Live for great causes. Fight for those causes. That's fine. But you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to base your life on them. You don't have to look to those things to be your justification. You have to say, my life has meaning and I'm worthwhile because I achieve these great causes. You're free from all that because he's already approved your works. You already have. Your life's already justified. You're already free from all that stuff. You say, you know, in that case, I can fight for this cause. I don't need to have it to feel worthwhile by myself. I don't need to have it to find meaning. I don't need to have it to find purpose. I've already got all that I need in him because he's already approved my works. Therefore, I am so much freer to achieve great things in this world. I don't have to have them. That's the gospel. Now, there's another part of the conclusion, but in chapter 12, he uses the words conclusion, right? So chapter 12, verse, verse one, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. So that is a plug for this Bible study to be in the word and reading the word every week. That's why we're here. So we encourage you not just to come and listen, but to read the word every week before the days come when you say, I have no delight in them. But in chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And I'm going to go back to Keller, because Keller spent one of those nine sermons on Ecclesiastes. He spent about 25 minutes on those two words, fear God. He said, and to summarize, the distinction is this. He doesn't end the book and say, keep the commandments. That would just be like any other religion. Be good. Be moral. He says, fear God and keep the commandments. And, you, and as most of us know, fear God has two different meanings. One is you can fear, you could cower in fear of harm to yourself. It's kind of a self-centered fear. But fear God, when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that is an awe and a reverence for God. And not just an awe and a reverence for his power that he could crush me like a bug. It's an honor reverence for his love and his mercy and his grace and his substitutionary atonement for me. So if I'm in awe of what he's done for me and I'm awe in awe of his grace and his mercy, as much as I'm in awe of his power, I say, Lord, in light of that, I want to keep all your commandments. And that brings up another wonderful gospel principle, that sequence. He has saved me. And I I, I have been accepted, therefore I obey. Not I obey so that I can be accepted. Those are my comments, prepare remarks on Ecclesiastes. Let's stop here now, open up for some conversation, questions, and then we'll turn a little bit to Song of Songs. Doug, we got one right here in the, in the front row. Going back to uh, your presentation uh, under C, you made a comment, and I believe it's from the scriptures, That's that about wisdom standing by me. Yes. No matter what that voice the professor death. did, that voice was still there. Right. Okay, my, my question is, and maybe this is part of my uh, criticism of people, why... Does it appear that some people don't have any wisdom at all to stand by them in their thinking process, in what they're doing, whatever? 
because I look at myself and this sort of applies to me that in the background, I have this thing that is telling me that's not the thing to do or whatever. But it seems to me that not everybody has that. And my guess, my question is why? Yeah. Well, I'm going to let Pat answer that. <laughs> My name's Pat. Thank you, Pat. And I'm a Christian. Hi, Pat. And Doug, the, re the reason or the answer to your question is that in our modern life, and Ecclesiastes speaks to, I think, our modern times much more so than it probably did in Solomon's time is the loss of purpose, or as a philosopher might say, the loss of teleology. Aristotle spoke of a final cause, the purpose for which a thing or being is. We don't have that in science. We just reduce everything to a mathematical formula so that a scientist sits at a physical table in a laboratory with beakers and tells us the only thing that really exists are swirling atoms in some quantum uncertain universe. And yet they write all this on a computer, physical objects. So we have confused the blueprint for the edifice. It's the same thing. Biological sex no longer has any meaning. A man can be a woman. A woman can be a man. You can be non-binary or however many binaries you want to be. And it runs throughout culture. It's not just the existentialists. It's, it's many books have been written by postmodernists who tell us there is no meaning in life. And I always want to say, then shut up and quit writing. <laughs> but that's that is the sickness of our modern culture is we have lost the sense of meaning. And, you know, I think it's Westminster Confession or the, the classic confession. What is the purpose of man? The purpose of man is to love, know and glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right. You start there and everything starts to fall into place. Hey, Doug, I think part of the answer to your question is Ecclesiastes, because the conclusion out of, from commentators that I've read, the conclusion out of Ecclesiastes is God is can, in control of everything. And for you to identify meaning in life, purpose in life and enjoyment in life is to recognize that. And so the people that you're talking about that are different than you or different than someone else, that's all God's creation. Why he has created that way, maybe he'll answer that someday, but it's his pleasure to create in the way that he has because it's perfection. What we're looking at, we don't see it that way, but what we're looking at is perfection. What God has done is perfect and everything he's done is perfect. We don't know the answers to all the whys, but we can look to him as being the author of everything. And that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to understand. So I want to add a couple of other things. Yeah, the presentation was excellent, Jim, but the word that is commonly used in the Hebrew, I'm maybe not pronouncing it right, is hovel, which is used. Let's well, we'll say the word again. Hovel, H-A-V-E-L. So that's what's translated meaningless or purposeless. But what it really means in the Hebrew is life is very difficult to grasp onto. So the 
so the metaphors that are often used is it's like trying to grab the wind and hold on to it or trying to grab smoke or a vapor and hold on to it. That's what life is like. It does. It's not simply that it has no meaning. It's that it cannot be grasped. You as a human being cannot hold on to life. And he proves that in two places in the text. Chapter three, the first part of it is all about time. You have no control over time. And that's what he's trying to tell you. So that's one of the reasons why life cannot be held on to. Time is always moving and you have no control. At the end, chapter 11 and 12, second one, which Jim pointed out, is death. You have no control over it. It comes to everyone. So life is hard to hold on to, difficult to hold on to because of time, because of death. But then you recognize two things. Number one, God is in control of everything. And so you look to him. And then the second thing is the very end of chapter 12, God will judge every act. That is our hope because we know who he is and his character, his perfection, his righteousness, his mercy and his love will judge every act of every person that's ever been alive that will stand before him. And that's the hope of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's a fairly long book, but the entire book is summed up in two, in two verses at the very end. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then 14th talks about our accountability to God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And our, the entire meaning of our lives is based upon our relationship with God. It's what gives meaning, and it's what gives us purpose, and it's what gives us the knowledge of his life and love. Yeah, that's great. So if I could just respond to Doug on this question, why doesn't the voice prior to getting ready for this, Bob Mosteller, we were texting each other different popular songs because this theme does come up a lot, right? So uh, there's a song by John Mayer it says that's called Something's Missing. He says, I've got the money, I've got the fame, I've got the guitar, I've got everything, I've got, he even says, I got women and all that other stuff. He said, but something's missing, something's missing, something's missing. And that theme keeps coming again and again in popular culture. You know, Pat, you're talking about books and plays and all the rest, but another pop music, Neil Diamond, you remember a song called I Am, I Said? Remember from years ago? I'm, I am lost and I can't even say why. Uh, there's a song by Simon and Garfunkel called America. He's on a bus ride with a girl named Kathy. And he said, we're riding together. And at one point in the song, he says, Kathy, I'm lost. I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm aching and empty and I don't know why. And other, other songs, so there's general recognition, like life is without purpose, but to really act on it and come to Christ, you got to admit two things. And there's the two great sins that keep people from doing it. People say the two great sins. I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. And no one but no one tells me what to do. So to act on it, I've got to admit I'm a sinner and I've got to, to, to any grace and I've got to come under someone's authority and I am not doing that. I don't know. Life has no purpose, but I'm not doing that. So that's the conflict. Sorry, that's my quick comment on that. But we have another hand back here. Yes. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, Jesus said, I think it's uh, Luke 11, that he's greater than Solomon. We have to keep that in mind, right? Because this is the wisdom of the world. This is a wisdom of a man who didn't end well. Okay. But he had a lot of wisdom. No question about it. Right. The queen of the South came to Solomon for his wisdom. Now, you know, what's the meta narrative for us or the paradigm for us? It's to promote the gospel, right? 
That's what our lives are about. That's our purpose is to worship God. Jesus is ruling and reigning now at the right hand of God in heaven. So we as men, what's our purpose? It's simple. We as Christians, we further the gospel. How do we do that? We pray, we witness, we work, we succeed, we achieve, we enjoy, we rejoice. All those things. God has given every one of those things to us. And we know that if sickness comes, financial difficulties come, whatever comes, whatever barriers, whatever uh, circumstances in our lives, we are more than overcomers through Christ. And our hope is in heaven. So, you know, we, we look at it that way. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't rejoice uh, without hope. We have great hope, right? Right. Now, Rex. This is Rex the lesser, Rex the greater speaking here. So, um, as, as you were going, I was thinking um, of the verse where, where Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Yeah. And, and it's not about getting stuff or the name it, claim it. It's about knowing that with him as your base, you can let go of all the other stuff. Yeah. And I think so many people come to Christ. Some come to Christ when they lose it all. Some come to Christ when they get what it, oh, they think yeah, satisfaction. That's right. And they don't. And that's what you see here. That's the gift of dissolution. This is what you see in Solomon. He got it all. Right. And he said, this is not this is not what I thought it was going to be. That's right. That's right. And that's why Christ says, I came that you may have life and life abundantly. That's great. That's exactly right. I, I like the three paths, you know, achievement, cause, pleasure. Yes. And, and they all lead nowhere. But I do want to say that in chapter five, at the very end, it says, moreover, when God gives any man wealth of possessions, when God gives them and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is a gift of God. Yes. There it is. Yes. I mean, yes. And that kind of phraseology that comes up again and again, actually, in Ecclesiastes, but it's a gift of God. So it means if you have if you have a Lord in him, then you can enjoy these things and do these things and achieve these things and accomplish these things. Exactly. But in him first. All right. Let's spend a few minutes on Song of Songs. Just this will be four, maybe three or four minutes. Song of Songs, a love story. There are different ways to interpret it. It's all in the first person. Here's one interpretation. I'm not sure this is the right one, but this is one I thought was interesting. There was girl meets boy, girl separated from boy, girl meets king, king likes girl, girl resists king, girl reunited with boy. How interesting. But if you read it, you say, okay, what is this doing in the Bible? And there are two basic camps on Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. One is that it's literal. It is only literal. It is not allegorical. It is purely literal. It's just a love story. That's it. Nothing else, nothing more. Don't read anything else into it. And the people who take this as, and that approach, that this is literal, are adamant that it should not be read allegorically. And there's actually, was reading the commentary, it's like almost like animosity between them. And it's almost like the people who live who are in the literal in the literal camp are saying, reading any passage of the Bible allegorically is fraught with peril because you are going to start saying, well, the flood was just an allegory or the creation was just an allegory. And where's it going to end? It's like a slippery slope fear. So no, stop it. It's just a love story. That's it. Okay, then why is it in the Bible? Well, they say, well, it's there to tell us that romantic love is okay. And sex between a man and a woman within marriage is okay. 
it's really okay. And even if that is all it is, that is kind of unique because I remember, I remember hearing this uh, a long time ago and I had to look it up and I said, yeah, it's true. You can actually Google it and find lots of articles that say this, that romantic love has been around for a long time. So this wasn't new. But romantic love wasn't really associated with marriage until a couple hundred years ago. People will say, oh, sure, I feel romantic feelings. They're just not associated with marriage. I marry for property. I marry for position. I marry for, you know, bring kings together, whatever it is. And then you have romantic feelings. Okay, they're not, those two things don't go together. And so if that's true, then this is groundbreaking. Like I would say, oh, I want them to go together within marriage, okay? Enjoy life with a woman who you love. And there's a proverb that says, enjoy life with a wife of your youth. So God say, I want romance and marriage to be connected, not like the, and it took the world thousands of years to catch up with that idea. So that's kind of interesting. But that's the literal view. The other view is allegorical. And this, is, this has traditionally been the view. In Jewish tradition, it's always been thought of as a love story, but basically a love story between God and his people. And in Christian tradition, this is Christ, the bridegroom, and us, the church, the bride. And so when I was a kid in Sunday school, we'd say, he lifts me up on his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. And we would go through the motion. So those are verses from Song of Solomon, right? We're saying those apply to God and his love for me, Christ, the bridegroom, and us, the, the, the bride, and his love for us. It's the allegory that relates to that. So if that's true, and if that's the way you read this, then you say, well, how do I, it's all about God's love affair with us. And you need to be lovesick for him. How can you be lovesick for him? Because he is lovesick for us. To read this book, and you say, wow, this is like God is gushing emotion. So if you feel in your Christian life, like God tolerates me, he puts up with me, well, you forgive him, but you know, you didn't amount to much, right? Uh, if that's the way you feel, you know, you read Song of Solomon and say, God is infatuated with you. God loves us. The love is gushing. It's a very different way of understanding your relationship with God. That's all I wanted to say about Song of Solomon. <laughs> Any comments, thoughts? In many ways, the Song of Solomon is the answer to the question raised by the professor in Ecclesiastes. Oh, for at the end, it's love is as love is as strong as death. It's jealousy cannot be quenched. So we can find meaning, purpose in life through our love of God and then loving one another or loving. That is one way we love God yeah. is we are faithful to the to the bride of your youth, your you, you love your family, etc., because that is the purpose for us. That's correct. So I think the two of them read together is a good way to approach it. That's good. I wasn't making the connection. That's great. Let's close prayer. Dave, would you mind closing a prayer for us? Sure. Father, uh, we come before you as men uh, today, uh, eager to do your will and bring you glory and honor and praise. As we learned today, uh, it's really all about you, Father. And we just want to connect up to you and uh, bring you that glory and honor and praise. I continue to pray for our country and what's going on in this world. And I just pray that it be your will and you be glorified, Father. Help us to go out today and bring you glory and honor and praise. Thank you for Jim and for everybody here today. In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need 
of God's grace. See you next time.